brother and two guys who'd be working in a bowling alley if it wasn't for John. Creedence Clearwater Revival. This is the one, the ultimate collection, Creedence Clearwater Revival's greatest hits on three LPs or two cassettes. This is your last opportunity to buy TV's biggest selling album at the final price of just $14.95. Call or right now to ensure delivery. Supplies are limited. Order, use your credit card and call 1-800-228-5100. If busy, call 1-800-441-1234. Uh, yeah, uh, green, some uh, brown uh, rust coloration. And was there anything of value in the car? Oh, uh, yeah, uh, a tape deck, some Credence tapes, and there was a... Uh, uh, my briefcase. In the briefcase? Uh, uh papers. Um, just papers. Uh, you know, uh, my papers. Business papers. And what do you do, sir? I'm unemployed. My rug was also stolen. Your rug was in the car. No, here. Separate incidents. The dude is not in. Do you Please find them much, uh, these stolen cars? Takes a minute. Sometimes. Wouldn't hold out much hope for the tape deck, though. Or the credence. That's not all you were noticing. And then I noticed this here, very, very funny. Did he tell you his name was Mary, as well as advertising? He was introduced as Mary, but, uh... You know what? My name's not really Mary. It's what? Debbie! That's, uh, no, it's, it's not. Debbie. It's Deborah. No, it's... No, no, I'm sorry. Do you, do you have an appreciation for the amount of work that, uh... It's that incredible. Went into these? I ought to. I did it myself. Wow. I did it. Jeez. I did it myself. It bored him to death. I could talk about it nonstop. Really, that well, is six that's six months. Super. That's six months working with leather and red thread. Oh. How much heaven he to be with? Heaven, yes. You did it. I did. Yeah. Well, he's, he's a I very talented young man. You, you, you must stitches. be very proud, Mary. <laughs> proud Mary. Well, oh, my goodness. <laughs> Who are you all of a sudden? Good baby boomer gag. Good heavens. Mr. Hip. <laughs> now we're going to do something for you. Nice and easy. I live Every now and then, I kind of like to do things nice and easy. But I, I guess you're thinking by now that there's just one thing, and that is that we never, ever do nothing nice and easy. Well, now you see it's because we like to do it nice 
and rough. We're gonna take the beginning of this song. And we're gonna do it easy. But then we're gonna do the finish. Rough. This is the way we do. Proud man. Say we're rolling. All right, welcome to episode 42, Creedence Clearwater Revival. Obviously, that last bit was uh, the late, great uh, Tina Turner and, and Ike. Uh, by the way, uh, Ike Turner, in a lot of these old videos, used to rock like a Beatles or a John Fogarty wig. It's the most bizarre <laughs> Dude, fucking thing ever. <laughs> Dude, you're killing me with that wig. I mean, what is up with that? I, I don't know, like, what he was thinking. What, was it a Beatles wig? It must have been, right? Or was it a John Fogarty wig? It could have been. Anyway. Just knowing what we know about Ike turning out, can you imagine how much scarier he must have been with that weird wig? <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's like he was already scary, like, beating her up and shit, but he comes yeah. at you with that crazy wig. He just looks insane. I know. It really is amazing. Um, anyway, uh, welcome to episode 42. This is CFX. This is the place, the culture, cultural futures exchange, where we examine different elements of cultural ephemera music today, obviously, uh, CCR, uh, movies, TV, books, you get the idea, examine the context and the time that they came out, what's happened since our take on a future evaluation in a kind of stock market, long, short, neutral kind of way. And that's what we do here. And so today we have Credence. Clearwater Revival, and Slip, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about your personal history with CCR here? I, I will, but before I do that, I think uh, as of today, uh, we're, we're also going to announce the change of our podcast name. It's now the Cultural Chuglin Exchange. Yeah. So <laughs> keep on chuglin. Keep on We'll be chuglin. talking about a lot of chuglin. Yes. Um, Especially from rate, uh, Doug uh, Clifford, right? Yeah, exactly. I think that's what Doug Clifford was doing, right? He was yeah. he kept on chugling all with the groupies. <laughs> uh, we'll be talking about his antics. Um, you know, it's funny. The, this is one of the bands that I just know all the members. Like, like it's like I know all the members of Quiet Riot. You know, like why? Like the yeah. Beatles. Obviously, everybody knows all the members, right? Kiss probably is another one. But Credence is one of those. I just always knew all the members. Like I yeah. knew their names. It's just uh, so interesting to me, especially given what we're going to say about the band and how, let's just say, it's kind of a band. Yeah. It's kind of one dude. Yeah. Um, at any rate, uh, yeah. So vague early memories. You know, it's funny because there's this kind of weird time during the early 70s where my when I first got into the music, it was all about the album-oriented rock, right? And I think you're probably the same. Led Zeppelin, right? Yeah. Mostly Led Zeppelin was the big one for me. And the Beatles were kind of both, right? They were they were pop group, top, you know, because they were the biggest group in the world and all this. But Credence kind of fell under the radar for me a little bit. They're kind of they kind of almost put in that grand funk railroad. And so I never really knew when I was young how huge they were, right? Yeah. At the time, like the fact that we're gonna talk about like for one year, they actually outsold the Beatles, um, which is crazy. And they um, were only around for like really three years, but kind of four almost at the max, right? Yeah, but it was just like they were on top the whole time. I almost, know. And they were just massive, you know, the biggest band. Anyway, vague, vague early memories, you know. Obviously, as a kid, I remember the whole Boynton thing, which we'll talk about where that comes from, you know. Uh, that You know, uh, I was always going to turn our name into old toy rule, you know, <laughs> you choice. <laughs> 
<laughs> you can't really do it with yeah. with some of this, but you know the the, the whole uh, toying and Boeing and thing. Uh, and I remember the TV commercial. There was like a TV commercial that was like Creedence Clearwater Revival, and I don't think it was Chronicle. It was some other compilation. It was probably it, it was the commercial that we played at the beginning. Yeah, basically. it was that commercial, yeah. right? Some Saul Zantz uh, scam, you yeah. know. Uh, uh, but anyway, um, I remember that. I remember hearing that, and I remember my, uh, you know, really early on, my stepdad was a huge fan of Creedence. He would totally get back into John Fogarty in the 80s, like a lot of baby boomers would with uh, center field. But he had Cosmos Factory. And I remember finding that on vinyl and thinking, God, this looks so old and clunky because it's just this real faded cover. They're just in the in the little studio they used, which yeah. was uh, part of a just a I think it was just a warehouse or something in the back. And they're all just on equipment and it looks all faded and it's a fucking amazing record, you know, and I put it on and I was like, whoa, you know, I know I've heard these, yeah. you know, and, and, um, and then I remember, you know, when I was, when I was getting older and I was getting more into classic rock, you know, uh, from Led Zeppelin to Pink Floyd to you, you name it, the who, the kinks, whatever. Um, I got a Rolling Stone record guide, which I always talk about on these episodes because I have both the blue and the red edition. You know, the red edition was late 70s. I got it from the library. And of course, Creedence had all these five star albums. Five star was the highest rating. Creedence had all these five star albums. And and the one that I gravitated to first was Chronicle, which yeah. I think a lot of people did. That's their biggest selling album of all time. The One of the greatest compilations ever, um, you know, just every great hit they had. And as we'll talk about, the hits were really kind of the highlight, even though there are other great songs um, that we might play clips from. But the hits, like, they would stack these singles and stuff with A-sides and B-sides that were both, like, hits. And it, it, he just wrote tons of hits. And so this Chronicle was this double album, and I remember hearing it. I remember hearing Fortunate Son and just being floored by the lyrics and, and just how hard it rocked. And then my dad got Bayou Country at one point. He bought a stack of records from like the garage sale or swap me and it had Bayou Country in it. So I heard Bayou Country. And then um, around that same time, John Fogarty had a huge comeback with um, Centerfield. All right. And I remember hearing that and kind of being into it. But, you know, looking back at it, we'll talk about what we think about that a little bit. It's kind of out of the scope of most of this. But, you know, I just remember the songs being really memorable and catchy and um, you know, we'll also talk about the lawsuits and stuff like that. Um, and then, of course, later on, you know, the Big Lebowski, you know, the whole great scenes with uh, that. we The one that we played at the beginning with the police interview with Jeff Lebowski. But there's also the great scene of him, you know, hitting the car ceiling and dropping a joint on himself. And we might hear was, that later. Oh, OK, great. Yeah. Um, and then. Uh, the best show. OK, so um, the best show, Tom Sharpling, uh, one of my favorite things. Uh, you know, over the last deck, a few decades, he would always talk about music. And he did this thing where he was just pissed off about the band. And I totally related to this because as a kid looking at all these record guides, there was no more critically acclaimed band than the band. And I've tried to get into this band about 50 times, you know, just like, oh, let me listen to the Big Pink or whatever. Music the band the album. Pink, yeah, yeah. Music from the Big Pink, you know, the yeah. band. And, and I watched Last Waltz. I've seen it a couple of times. Yeah. And look, I think they're a solid band. They have some great songs. But the the whole critically acclaimed thing, I mean, it's it's like Tom was just saying, look, the best American band is fucking Credence. It's not the band. And I was like, totally. 
Credence blows them out of the water. I mean, you look at the songs, but it's, and I was even, I like this YouTube channel called Taste Like Music. It's kind of a love-hate relationship. It's these three kind of millennial dudes and they review. I like it because they'll just, they'll do, oh, we're going to, we're going to rank the discography of Whitney Houston. You know, they'll do anything. (laughs) Right. They'll do Whitney Houston. They do a lot of indie rock. I like like Flaming Lips. They'll do Led Zeppelin. You know, in some things, I totally agree with their opinion, you know, but but man, when they ranked CCR, I was about ready to throw a rock into my computer screen. I was just like freaking out because they love the band. And it's just like such a stupid contest because it's just like it's not a contest. Yeah. CCR is about a billion times better. And I mean, look, if you're going to go by the, you know, the guys in the band as musicians, yeah, like Robbie Robertson's a pretty. Yeah, the band are better musicians overall, except for Fogarty, right? Fogarty's great, right? Fogarty is great. He's a better singer than any of them. John Fogarty. John Fogarty. (laughs) John Fogarty, let's be clear. Um, Yeah. Uh, So John Fogarty is as good or better than any of those guys musically. Um, Songwriter-wise, he crushes them. 100%. Absolutely. I mean, they have some great songs. That, But but to me, they have like one or two really great songs. The rest is okay. And he'll just come up with an album like Green River. It's just good from start to finish, right? Or yeah. Willie and the Poor Boys. These are like five out of five star, 10 out of 10 albums. You know, and he just had so many great, iconic songs. And who who... You know, look, sometimes popular, more popular is better. And in this case, that's the case. And I just don't get the band. Look, I'm still open minded about them. Maybe I'll get it someday. But just between the two, it's just no competition. So I really related to that. And then um, the, the band, by the way, I mean, I agree, by the way. And the band, I think, is completely overrated from a critical point of view. Oh, and yeah. I, I think they just had like the state, the Bob Dylan kind of thing and, yes. and all that. And yes. I think in the long arc of history, people will be like, yeah, they, they were talented musicians. They had a couple of good songs, but they're not. I mean, this is another episode we can do the band. But like CCR, about a billion times better. It's not even fucking close. In yeah, my opinion. I agree. Um, so, yeah. And then, of course, you know, maybe this was the impetus for this episode, Jeff, because this was your idea. But there was that recent Credence at Royal Albert Hall. I finally yep. watched it. I loved every bit of it. I wish there was more documentary. Um, yeah. that's my only thing. Cause I really like the documentary part. Doug Clifford loved... doesn't cause it was... yeah. <laughs> but, oh yeah. 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 No, I, I, I did see that. Uh, I did see that on, you know, whatever that streaming Netflix. That was on yeah. Netflix. And I was mm-hmm. like, uh, I, you know, I, of course I watched as soon as I saw it, I'm like, oh, I'm going to watch this. And I was just like, God damn it. They were, they were a great fucking band. You know, like live, that was live, no adornments, no studio magic, no bullshit. They were, they kicked ass on that. I just got to say the entire band was good. John obviously stood above, but I was, I was really blown away by how good they sounded live at the time and everything. So. Yeah. uh, And then uh, definitely they sounded great live, especially of course, his amazing singing and playing. Um, But at any rate, I also uh, listened to his audio book, Fortunate Son for this. Um, episode and it's him reading it. And so Barb, my wife was just laughing because, you know, you hear this guy who's like traveling bad. He's like, you know, he's just screaming. And then you hear it read the audiobook, and it's just like this gentle hippie. Yeah. You know, uh, Saul Zantz took us for a ride. Like every time <laughs> he says the word, the, the article a, he doesn't yeah. say, uh, he always says a, yeah. and he pronounces everything carefully. And it's like, she was just laughing at me like for reading, <laughs> although she liked the book, you know, it was, yeah. it, it's an interesting book. Um, 
And then, of course, you know, it always comes up to me like, who's the great American band? You know, is it the Beach yeah. Boys? Is it is it the, is it Creedence? Uh, you know, it's 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 those two really come to mind just when I think about what's the American Beatles or whatever, yeah. you know, and there really isn't one. You know, there's really nothing to compare. And I'm definitely, you know, if I think about my favorite bands, almost all of them are freaking British, you know, but it's like um, they're as far as American bands. This is one of them. They're just one of them. Right. Yeah. No. Yeah. Look, I think they're great for sure. Um, you know, as far as being the very best, I think to me, I mean, you mentioned the Beach Boys and I would obviously, you know, OK, get everyone ready to drink. You know, Steely Dan. <laughs> yeah. But you yeah. could argue that Steely Dan wasn't really a band in the traditional sense for most of their most. Maybe the first work. few albums. Maybe the first few. Albums, but but they but they you had David Palmer and like. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it, you could say that they weren't really a band. They were a, you know, studio thing. And by the way, you could say that about the Beatles in their later years too. Same thing. Yeah. Um, so if you, if you exclude them for that reason, which I think is true, you could also do the same for the Beach Boys, right? Yeah, Who, it's you true. Know, so if you, if you take that path, um, there's no question that's Creedence. Who else would it be? Right. Yeah. I mean, maybe there's a few other contenders that we're conveniently forgetting right now in, in terms of, in terms of it, but but I would agree with you if you if with those uh, caveats for sure. It's also um, because they are so American, right? Yeah. It's like they, they're, they're, there's a they're steeped in Americana. We'll talk about the whole Bayou shit and all that. Um, but he is so steeped in American music. He's like almost like a like a Martin Scorsese is to film. But we'll talk about that more in the evals. Yeah. Um, at any rate, I'll I'll let you take over uh, your personal history. Yeah. <laughs> so like you. The TV commercials that were on in the 70s and, and maybe early 80s, late 70s, early 80s, you know, all the there's like, you know, the what we played at the beginning of the show. There's different variations of that. Whenever I heard those, I I'd probably heard Credence on the radio at times, you know, in the 70s radio, but it, I didn't never really register that was Credence. But when I saw those commercials and they were playing, you know, clips from all the songs, I was like, wow, this is great. Like, I, I liked them all even as a kid. There's something super compelling about the songs, like the moment that you hear them, which speaks a lot to, um, you know, the, the skill in writing those and the appeal of writing it. Um, one of the earliest CDs I ever got was Chronicle. I think I don't, it was certainly not the first CD, CD I ever bought, but it was probably in, in the first 10 for sure. Mm. And I listened to the, that all the time. I thought it was great. Um, when I was in I think it was, I might've been ninth grade or 10th grade, something like that, maybe late uh, junior high, early high school. Uh, some of my friends and I decided, you know, we loved Weird Al, we loved Dr. Demento. And, you know, we were all just like wannabe musicians and stuff. So we um, decided we were going to do a song parodies and, and play, our, you know, play our hand at, at song parodies. And of course, one of the obvious ones, uh, you know, was a parody of Looking Out My Back Door but it was dude, 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 pooping out my back door. Dude. All right. <laughs> Another drink, everyone. Yeah. yeah. Right. So uh, we, we wrote it. We played it. Uh, we recorded it to uh, my friend Nick's. He had a, like a four track uh, Tascam. Um, we, we did our best. We didn't know what we were doing recording. It was just mostly just, you know, ambient room recording, even though, you know, I'm sure it sounded like, like, complete shit. I don't remember any of the lyrics. I'm sure they weren't worth remembering. And I don't even remember if we, um, you know, ever sent it into Dr. Demento. And if we did, we never heard back. But 
the lyrics weren't great. And, you know, to quote Joe Jackson, not everyone can be a prodigy, right? Right, right. <laughs> and, and we, we certainly weren't. But I just remember we were uh, trying to, you know, do a parody of uh, Looking Out My Back Door, uh, of course, and with the obvious uh, poo-related uh, parody there. Um, and then the other thing was about Credence is we used to buy weed for a while from this guy who looked just like Stu Cook. And I mean, he was too young to actually be Stu Cook, but I'm sure Stu Cook probably did a, a turn or two of selling weed at some points. Uh, wouldn't surprise me whatsoever. Um, later, you know, when I started learning how to play guitar, one of the first uh, guitar solos I learned was Susie Q. That's uh, a great one. It's not super hard to learn. It's not easy, but it, it, it's approachable um, in, in terms of, of learning it. And it's just a classic blues-based you know, guitar lick, and it's so great. And John, I always thought, was perpetually underrated as a guitarist. Oh, yeah. Um, when those lists of all the great guitarists come out, he's never on that list, or he's never very high, and it's like, that's bullshit. You know, he's not Eddie Van Halen or Jimmy Page or anything, but, you know, he's a great guitarist. He really He is. just knows what to play. He does. I mean, he just, it, like, his solos and stuff, I mean, you know, we'll be playing clips and stuff, but just the riffs uh, that totally. he came up with are you know, just magical, you know, yeah. they're just amazing. He is a great I mean, guitarist. we, we love Credence. We're, you know, we're, this is an evaluation show. We should just say, obviously we're really into Credence. We, we like them. Uh, and, uh, and that's probably going to be what this is about. But again, we'll also, you know, evaluate whether we think other people will love them down the line, you know, maybe that's they right. won't. Uh, that's so, right. but yeah, I think we're making no bones that we're fans. True. Um, I played a clip at the beginning of Al Bundy singing Who Will Stop the Rain. You know, yeah, Al Bundy liked oldies and he liked Credence. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, I always love Married with Children. We'll cover that at some point. Oh, yeah. Um, and, you know, his love of Credence, he, he uh, talked about it or, or referred to it multiple times. And I couldn't agree more, obviously, as we were just saying. Um, there was a commercial in California, I think in the 80s, the uh, California Grapes, where they played I Heard It Through the Grapevine. Um, that was cool. Ike and Tina singing Proud Mary, one of the great covers. We we talked a little bit about it at the beginning of the show. Mostly great from for Tina, obviously, and then Ike's wig. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's funny. Um, my sister actually does. You hear Tina talk, and it's yeah. like, what is her voice? Because she's from the South, but she almost sounds Jamaican or something. She's got yeah. this weird way of talking. My sister does a really good impersonation of her. It's pretty funny. Yeah. Um, but anyway, well, she's like, you know, and that, that weird kind of like... <laughs> Yes, Tina Tana. You know, she's yeah. she just sounds like from another country or something. It's so yeah, crazy. It is but crazy. yeah, once she starts singing, it's like, whoa. Yeah. We'll talk more about Proud Mary and that whole legacy too. Um yep. <laughs> uh I in the mid-90s, I lived in France for a while and played, you know, in various kind of band sort of things, not very seriously. I had a friend who I lived with there who's a real musician. And you know, played along at some gigs with him. And one of the songs we played was uh Have You Ever Seen the Rain? Uh, which is a, a great song. We'll talk about it. You mentioned The Big Lebowski, obviously. Um, and, you know, we're going to cover that movie at some point. You know, I think it's pretty epic to both of us and obviously plays a big part uh, in the movie and for the dude. And lastly, I actually kind of sort of met John Fogarty once, I think. Oh, in the, wow. Yeah, in the early 90s. Um, I was with my uh, dad in, in Arizona in Scottsdale and we were at the, for whatever reason, at the Scottsdale mall and John Fogarty was there and he was like, he was sitting on his bench with, you know, I don't know, his family or whoever it was. 
But I was just, I walked by and I was like, holy shit, that's John Fogarty. Wow. And, and I was just kind of like staring at him for a while. And I'm like, I just got to say hi to him. And I just like went up to him. I said, hi, John, uh, big fan. He's like, hey, thanks. That was it. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it was him for sure. Uh, he was rocking that 80s hair that he had on center field uh, and all that. But yeah, it was cool to actually, I occupied the same space time. Uh, oh, that's with, cool. Uh, that's with, cool. With John Fogarty. So there you go. Why don't you... Uh, Help helps understand the, the zeitgeist here. Yeah, the zeitgeist. First, I'm going to talk about his influences because they're all over the place. I mean, he was, as a kid, he was really into all kinds of different music. He was super open. But one of the first things he mentions, which is kind of interesting to me, is the songwriter Stephen Foster from the late 19th century. And of course, Stephen Foster wrote, you know, My Darling Clementine, Oh Susanna, a Beautiful Dreamer, Camp Town Races, all these songs that you sang when you were a kid that have been, I mean, talk about standing the test of time. These songs have just lasted. Um, and they and he and they were kind of like these standards. And yeah. it's crazy because he he took some of that same imagery and he created Proud Mary, which was like an instant fucking standard. I mean, when it came out, it's kind of like yesterday by the Beatles. It was just a standard right when it came out. You know, it was it was one of these songs that just immediately resonated and it has it's full with that imagery. And we'll talk more about that. But obviously, you know, he's got influences um, that range. I mean, in his book, he has this whole chapter where he just goes over all these things he was into as a kid. Um, and, you know, obviously one of his first things was folk music. He had seen um, Pete Seeger live at this festival and he was blown away by his he said he's still the greatest live performer he'd ever seen just how he could move a crowd obviously he was also really into lead belly they cover um credence covers cotton fields on uh willie and the poor boys which is a lead belly song um you know lead bellies uh, that's kind of blues folk uh and then dylan obviously was an influence on everybody and he was an influence on john in the early 60s as well and then blues is huge right yeah the whole boing and toying thing uh, that's really influenced by Howling Wolf. Howling Wolf sang that, you know, that way. Um, and then Lightning Hopkins was a, another huge influence. Obviously, country music plays in. I mean, we, you know, looking out my back door, that's pretty much a pop country song, uh, you know, as as is Bad Moon Rising. Um, Johnny Cash, uh, Hank Williams, Merle Haggard. Um, rock and early rock and roll was a huge influence. Little Richard, obviously. He loved Little was, Richard. I heard him talk about Little Richard in a lot of interviews. Well, he was actually sued by Little Richard for traveling band because it sounded too much like Good Golly Miss Molly, which is another song uh, Credence would cover. Um, and it was settled out of court. I don't, I think it sounds, it's more like a Little Richard homage. Yeah. It sounds like a Little Richard tribute, but I think it's an original sounding song uh but you know set all out of court i probably didn't want to go toe-to-toe with this hero you know uh and then elvis was a huge influence ricky nelson was a big one um and uh also the guitarists of these guys oh well carl perkins he liked because carl perkins was a big fan of ricky nelson too (laughs) (laughs) that's an inside joke if you know we'll probably mention boyd mcdonald again we've talked about cruising the movies before we're gonna well it's an inside joke for people who've listened to more than one episode i guess i guess um anyway uh uh, carl perkins was a big hero because he not only sang and played guitar but he wrote all of the songs um so that he had one up early rock and roll guitarists um obviously scotty moore uh one of the big um songs by credence is of course bad moon rising and that guitar riff is kind of borrowed from 
a song by Elvis Presley called I'm left, you're right. I'm what is it? I'm let you're left. I'm right. I'm gone or whatever it is yeah. uh, that Scotty Moore actually came up to him and said, Hey, you stole my, my riff. Um, and John said, yep. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and they, you know, obviously he loved bad moon rising. So it was cool. Uh, Link Ray and Dwayne Eddy, instrumental guitarists were a big influence. And of course the Beatles were a huge influence as we'll talk about when we get to the gollywogs era of the band. Yeah. Um, and one of the zeitgeist though, of are, you, are you wearing your gollywogs t-shirt? Uh, no. And we'll okay. talk about why Hollywogs, uh, <laughs> you know, we're going to talk about what that is, but you're not going to see an Instagram of that one. Um, at any rate, uh, you know, there was this whole late 60s movement that was kind of a backlash to the excesses caused by Sgt. Pepper, you know, the crazy psychedelia. So all these bands were kind of getting back to basics. And obviously we know the Beatles did this with Get Back, the whole Get Back uh, project. Um, you know, that's chronicled in the documentary. You should all watch. Uh, the band was part of this as well, as was Dylan. Dylan uh, came out with John Wesley Harding, which is a uh, an album that was very scaled down compared to the kind of more elaborate, almost psychedelic lyrics of something like Blonde on Blonde. And then you had all these bands doing this, but Credence was right ahead of the curve, you know, because right in 68, they came out with their first album. And it's a little more drawn out and jammy. You know, obviously, Suzy Q kind of gets a little almost proto-psychedelic, but it's still pretty basic. And then by the next album and the next album, they were even more back to basic. So I was, I think Credence was almost an influence on this period more than they were followers. And obviously, you have late 60s, early 70s, top 40 radio, which Credence just dominated. Yep. Um, so that's kind of the zeitgeist. Obviously, there's a, this whole Americana thing, this whole, you know, uh, looking back, as I mentioned, on these influences and kind of synthesizing them and coming up with something new that I think would be very influence on, influential on country rock in the 70s, like the Eagles and, you know, uh, other other types of music in the 70s and even in, in the 80s uh, with with kind of the whole heartland shit that you know john mellencamp would do and bruce springsteen i mean he the the influence of fogarty on just young songwriters of the time was just so massive um because he was so great yeah. um now as far as the 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 history um yeah we're gonna we're gonna set the mood here for you you know so it was down in the in the bayou right deep in the bayou a young couple, Ma and Pa Fogarty, were kind of, you know, sweeping up their porch, kind of toying over some some leaves and grass. They start to see this little basket floating on the river. The only thing they see is a big flannel blanket with a big mop of Prince Valiant hair coming out the top. <laughs> And they came and picked this picked this baby up and it started wailing and wailing and it sounded like the greatest blues singer they'd ever seen. And they named the young boy John. Now John was mistreated by his other brothers because he was, you know, this great genius and uh, especially his brother Tom who was, you know, kind of a no-talent hack and it was a tough time for John but he, he picked up the lessons of the bayou, you know, deep in, in Louisiana. Uh, down there in the swamps and and stuff. And at any rate, that's the bullshit. Uh, we can stop now. 
<laughs> At any rate, uh, none of that's true. Uh, and not to diss Tom too much. We'll diss him much later um, in the history. Probably in the early days, he seemed all right. I don't I don't think John didn't get along with his brothers. But anyway, so the real John Fogarty. So John Fogarty has this whole mythos around him with these lyrics he has about, you know, cool water flows and bayous and, you know, riverboat queens and all this shit. But he grew up in fucking, he was born in Berkeley yeah. uh, in 1945. He grew up in El Cerrito. So in yeah. the suburbs of Berkeley, basically. Um, and he was a third of five boys. And of course, the other brother we're concerned with in Credence, the other members, uh, his elder brother, Tom Fogarty, who was four years older than him. Um, the original family name was Fogarty with the A-R-T. But that was deemed too Irish when the family... You know, the grandfather or great grandfather migrated to the U.S., so they changed it to Fogarty. Mm -hmm. um, and he was Catholic. He went to Catholic school and he had this whole story in Catholic school about how he would arrive late for whatever reason and he couldn't get up to go to the bathroom. So he just pee his pants. Yeah. Um, so at any rate, efficient. So I guess it's more like Yellow River than a Green River. Um, <laughs> you got to drink yeah. for that. You, you, yeah, exactly. We got a, a pee and poo. I was going to joke about Brown River, you know. Uh, <laughs> um, anyway, um, so anyway, his parents were alcoholics and they divorced when he was young. But he did have some memories of his dad taking him camping to a place called Putaw Creek in Winters, California, which is actually mentioned in Green River, the song Green River later. So it's a little autobiographical. So that part of the whole country thing is true. But most of that was just kind of his fantasy world. It was kind of the, you know, he was listening to the blues guys and the country guys, and he wanted to sing about the same things. Um, now, when he was really young, he was 14. He was going to uh, junior high and he was he would go into the uh, music room. He started fiddling with piano and things like that. And he would go into the music room and just kind of mess around on the piano. And he started to attract an audience, you know, because obviously maybe he had some talent, you know, and he met a couple of dudes. Uh, one was a rich kid whose father was like one of the big lawyers in town, Stu Cook, and the other was Doug Clifford. Um, and they started jamming together. Um, I think Stu originally was on piano and John switched to guitar and Doug was drums. Right. And they started playing and they got so good uh, that they actually, um, you know, ended up backing up this guy when they were 14, this African-American singer named James Powell on a single called Beverly Angel. Mm. And you can find this on YouTube. It's very different. It's very 50s, kind of, you know, almost like an Earth Angel, if you if you know that song by the Penguins. Um, that That's kind of like an early doo-wop or, or, you know, love song. And that's how good they were. You know, it's crazy that they could play this way. And then um, their brother, Tom, joined them. He was in another band, Spiderweb and the Insects, <laughs> uh, who actually got a record contract, but broke up before they recorded anything. And Tom had a really good voice. He had actually he would actually kind of had this high angelic voice, very different from what John would sound like when he would sing. And uh, they recorded a bunch of singles, uh, including uh, John's first real composition because originally they were doing covers and it was uh have you ever been lonely was his first composition again all this stuff is on youtube uh so you can listen to it we're gonna play one early song but that's that's about it just just because i really like this one early song so i want to play it but but then they signed uh to fantasy records uh in 
1964. And the reason they did that was they had seen a, a little local television documentary about the record label, because the record label had been around since the 50s, and it was mostly a jazz record label. Um, and they had they had once had these great artists like Jerry Mulligan, Chet Baker, and of course the great Dave Brubeck on their label. But because of their you know their incompetence and bad business practices, as we'll get to more when we come to Credence, they had lost all these artists, you know. So they were kind of struggling. But then they had had um, Vince Guaraldi. Uh, most people know him from the Charlie Brown music on the Charlie Brown Christmas special, the jazz uh, pianist. He had this hit called Cast Your Fate to the Wind that was a big hit for fantasy. And so they had seen that this was this local record company. And they just went over there with their music and, and got signed. Um, it was originally run by a guy named Max Weiss. Uh, later, it would be Saul Zance. But we'll talk about him in a bit. So... When they, when they joined the record label, obviously this was in 64. And so the Beatles were just breaking. And in order to take advantage of that, they wanted the band to change their name from the very kind of 50s sounding uh, Blue Velvets to the Visions at first. And then and then the Gollywog. So the Gollywogs is what Gollywog is and why we'll never make it a clue is it's basically these little, almost like Sambo dolls. Mm. They're like... Blackface dolls that were created um, in the British, certain British colonies, um, and they called the people gollywogs. And, and this is a slur, wogs, right? You probably heard this British slur for black people. And so um, that's a crazy name, but it sounded it was a British thing. So he's like, well, this is British, even though it's like the most racist thing ever. You know, we'll call our name the gollywogs. And, you know, it was in a different time then. So Fantasy also created this subsidiary label called Scorpio, which was all focused on bands with British Invasion uh, sounds. Now, none of these bands did anything. Um, as we'll find out, this record company was pretty much in the Credence business. That's the Credence basically made this record company. And we'll talk about how that record company paid them back for their efforts. Um, but anyways, the Gollywogs released just a bunch of singles. They didn't even have an album. And they were very much in that uh, British invasion. They had a song called Don't Tell Me No Lies. Uh, Brown Eyed Girl was a regional hit, but most of these, and they had one called Walk on the Water, which would actually be put on the first Credence album as well. But I want to play a little clip. We're going to play a little clip of a song called Fight Fire, because this is very, you'll hear the kind of early John Fogarty British invasion influence. So very different than what he would do later, but still super catchy. Like it could have been a hit. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like uh, to me, it sounds like something from the Nuggets collection or something like 60s garage, uh, you know, like a lost 60s garage classic. But you can listen to all the Gollywog stuff. There are compilations out there and YouTube has a bunch of both the Blue Velvets and the Gollywogs. You can listen to it. You can obviously see it's not quite the level of Credence, but this that song in particular, I think, really stood out there. There's some good ones. Um so part of the reason the Gollywogs didn't break out besides their really terrible name and, you know, just the bad 
marketing a fantasy uh, was that they uh, both Doug Clifford and John Fogarty had to do military service. Right. Yeah. And what uh, during the years 66 to 68. Um, and this kind of prevented them from really breaking out. Uh, Fogarty was in the Army Reserves. And he, the funny thing is he was about to be drafted and he got his drafting paperwork. And he convinced the guy, this great guy with the Army Reserves, to kind of backdate his Army Reserve uh, paperwork so it looked like he had already, was already in the Army Reserves when he got the draft paperwork. Nice. So he didn't have to go to Vietnam, which we're all thankful for. Especially uh, Doug, John. Yeah. Doug Clifford was in the National Guard. So, you know, who knows what kind of weird military groupies he ran into. As we'll get into, <laughs> uh, that's kind of one Doug Clifford's... Uh, He's got maybe two or three claims to fame, and that's one of them. Uh, so anyways, um, so so as far as the Gollywogs go, the lineup is pretty much the Creedence lineup, right? And and as you could tell, the the vocals were kind of more of a, a, a group thing, but John was really rising as the leader here. And he really wrote most of the songs. They, they had this songwriting um, kind of conceit where they called themselves like one guy was named wild and the other guy was named green and it was him and Tom mainly, but the other guys, Stu and Doug didn't write any songs. And I don't, I'm not even sure the contribution of Tom, because as we'll see with credence, I mean, this is pretty much a one man show when it comes to the songwriting uh, for the most part. So uh, Fogarty talks a lot of in his book about his army days. I'm not going to go into that, but the, but it did inspire one of the first songs on their debut album, Porterville, which was also the for band's first single. Right. So right around the time they were getting out of the military, their military commitment, the band decided to change their name because, well, the name was terrible. And uh, they were influenced. Uh, Tom kind of contributed. He had this friend named Credence. I forget his last name, but he had a friend named Credence, C-R-E-D-E-N-C-E. And so he said, well, what about the name Credence? But they didn't feel like that was enough. And then John... Uh, had seen a, a beer ad for Olympia beer where they, uh, you know, you know, all these beers were all the same, but they were all just like, it's the water, right? Because yeah. Coors had the water, the Olympia had the same thing. So, you know, it had some like, you know, a, you know, the, uh, the clear water. And so he's like, oh, clear water. Okay. Creedence, clear water. And then the revival came from, you know, that this was a rebirth for the band. Yeah. It's, a, it's and, one of the greatest band names ever, I think. By the way. Yeah. They went from a few of the worst band names ever to the, the great one of the, one of the ones that really stands out and it kind of sounds dated in a way, but they, because they're so great, uh, you know, cause it, it definitely, I don't know. It sounds good. It, it's almost like one of those sixties band names. That's kind of long, but it really, you know, it's like the grateful dead, you know, whatever you think about the dead, it's a great band name. Yeah. And I think, I think these names kind of, transcend that 60s-ness you know they're kind of more timeless and it fits the band right it's it's got that americana feel right the whole clear water thing and nature yeah. but uh i'll agree with you there uh so around this time saul zantz who had been with uh fantasy for nine since 1955 i think he was in sales he purchased the label from max and the brothers max and saul vice in 1967 um and he came up with this contract and i'll I'll try to get into some of the weeds with these negotiations because it's important to the story. But, you know, to be honest, it's hard to wrap your head around some of this stuff. And I think that's how it was designed. I think it was designed to be confusing for the band so that Saul could rip them off. I mean, this guy, let's just say this guy is a was, you know, 
uh, R.I.P., but not rest in peace, because this guy's one of the worst figures in the music business in history. I mean, he really was a criminal. He should have been in jail wow. for what he did to, to Credence. Um, and they were gullible. I mean, this you, there's so many stories of bands just signing a deal without getting a lawyer. And the irony was that Stu Cook's father was a lawyer. And John Fogarty talks about, like, why didn't he look at this? And John Fogarty said he asked him to look at it. The other guys blamed John Fogarty for what happened. But they got into a kind of a weird deal where the band just ended up owing them so much uh, for um, for the uh, for the label, right? They owed them so much music, and that's probably one of the reasons they per- they were so productive in such a short time. But it also could just be that John just had a burst of you know inspiration. Um, but at any rate, they got into this deal with Saul Zantz, and then they started playing around San Francisco. And John talks about how much he hated like the Grateful Dead and these kind of bands. Like he just hated yeah, him this- and me both. Yeah. <laughs> are are you kind? He didn't think so. Yeah. He um he absolutely hated this um stuff. And um so they they were playing around and they didn't really fit in, but they kind of had some kind of jammy stuff, you know, obviously Susie Q. It's got a little bit of psychedelicness to it. It's a little jammy and um Stu Cook took credit for that and John disputes that. He said he arranged the whole thing. And when he would get into the studio, he basically had to do everything. And he actually did all the backup vocals. um, He would do all the backup vocals on the songs going forward because he hated how the band's backup vocals sounded on Porterville. He just thought the other guy's backup vocals were bad. So a lot of the backup vocals you hear on Credence are just John. Yeah. Um, And um, so anyway, they created their debut album in... Uh, May of 1968, it only went to number 52, uh, but it would eventually become platinum for obvious reasons because of the successes of the albums after. But Suzy Q, uh, their first single, which was a cover of a Dale Hawkins song, was a really big hit. It was number 11. So it was their first big hit. Um, They followed that up with a really great cover of Screamin' Jay Hawkins, I Put a Spell on You. I mean, this band does covers and they're all good. I like I heard it through the grapevine might go on a little too long, but it's really good. You know, it's like, I don't dislike any of their covers. I think all they do covers really well, you know, in spite of having like this great American songwriter. And I put a spell on you only made number 58, but it's fucking great. Okay, 1969 was crazy for Credence. They released three albums and they became absolutely massive. This is the one year that in the 60s that a band was more successful than the Beatles. Yeah. Uh, just for record sales and stuff like that. And Credence uh, started out the year with Bayou Country, January 1969. Obviously, this contained Proud Mary, uh, which became an instant standard um, and was covered uh, almost immediately uh, by a few different people. And obviously, most famously by Ike and Tina Turner. And it was the first of their singles where they kind of had two A sides. They would take their strongest songs and put them on the A and B side. So Proud Mary was backed with Born on the Bayou. And Billboard had a rule back then that both songs could contribute to the chart position. This would change a little later where they would be uh, separate. So if a song was a B side, but it was played on the radio, um, you know, you kind of got to think of like Hound Dog back or Don't Be Cruel backed with Hound Dog, right? That's the ultimate like kind of A side, double A side, right? The Beatles probably had a few of those, too, where it was like the A side and the B side were both hits. 
Um, so the Credence, almost all their singles are like this. So this was their first number two song. Credence has the world record for the most times at number two for a band that never reached number one <laughs> in the U.S., right? So they had they went to number two, I believe, four times. Always we'll go through them. Yeah, isn't that crazy? Yeah. Um, the only number one song they had was in the U.K., Bad Moon Rising. They never had a number another num- number one song in the United States. So anyway, Bayou Country... Number seven, two times platinum. Proud Mary Born on the Bayou, number two. The single itself was two times platinum, was also number eight in the UK. And it was in the top 10 in many countries worldwide, like 12 countries or something. Uh, They followed that album up with Green River in August of 1969. That was number one. It was three times platinum. Obviously, you had the big sing, uh, another double A side, Bad Moon Rising, backed with Lodi. Number two in the US, number one in the UK, two times platinum on the the single, top 10 in many countries. They followed that up with another number two song, uh, Green River, backed by the great commotion. It was gold in the U.S., again, number two. So that's their third number two. Um, And then, uh, obviously, they played Woodstock. This is not something a lot of people know because John hated their performance so much that he refused to allow it to be in the film. But they did play Woodstock, and you can find this on Spotify and other platforms. They have this in a live album. I watched it last night. Yeah. And it's good. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, I think it's fine. I didn't think they were bad, but part of it is that they followed the Grateful Dead. And he just said the crowd was just laying there. Probably they were so bored by the dead. Yeah. <laughs> sleeping. Yeah. It was like two in the morning, he said, and people were just asleep in the mud. He said it sucked. You know, like there's no crowd participation. They sort of play into dark people. Uh, you could hear a little clapping when they play Proud Mary. out in the, yeah. You can hear a little applause when they played Proud Mary, but I mean, this band was, this was their peak. Ah, you know, yeah. I mean, they were like they the, were big, the big headliner, you know, supposedly yeah. for it. Yeah. I mean, they had bigger, more album sales than most of the bands there. Yeah. Even though they were barely like, you know, a year and a half old or whatever at that time. Um, so they followed that third album, 1969, third classic album. All these albums are great. Like a first album is solid. But the next, these three in a row are all masterpieces, I think. I mean, they're pretty much perfect records. Willie and the Poor Boys, um, in November of 69, number three on the charts. It was two times platinum. Oh, Green River, by the way, was number one. Um, that was their first number one album. Um, they had uh, the big single from this was Down on the Corner, backed with Fortunate Son, probably one of the greatest double A side singles of all time. It was number three in the U.S. It was three times platinum, and there was change in the Billboard rules uh, that kind of uh, made the the songs chart kind of separately. But it's it's very confusing. If you look at Wikipedia, you can see these weird lines drawn in between. So it's there were all these changes with the rules, but essentially, you can kind of look at it as the same one single, but both songs were played on the radio. So. Um, Around this time, obviously, Credence was getting really big. So Saul Zantz had this weird scheme where he was like, oh, I'm going to offer you 10% of the company, which, of course, is ironic because Credence was 100% of the company's profits. Hmm. I mean, there were no other artists on Fantasy making any money. And Credence was basically bankrolling this guy. They should have been given like 90% of the company. And um, But he had this weird thing where they set up this bank called Castle Bank in the Cayman Islands. 
Now, if I ever hear the Cayman Islands or Bermuda, I just think, okay, this is obviously not above board. Um, yeah, some kind of shell company offshore. Yeah, and the mafia like guys were in there. Um, you know, mafia, the mafia was involved and stuff, and it would kind of come apart in the 70s. Like the feds would get in there and the Credence would basically lose all their money. So, yeah, it was it was like a, a total scam. Uh, OK, so, you know, obviously, 69 was a huge year. Um, you know, they at, at this time, they're they're kind of just basking in their success, even though things are going to kind of fall apart that are being set up now by Salzance. They have the Royal Albert Hall concert in early 1970, and they released Cosmos Factory, their biggest selling album, July Did of 1970. Is is the Royal Albert Hall, obviously, in London, is that where John Paul Jones saw him and stole his haircut? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if they've ever been seen in the same place at the same time. Maybe they traded wigs. Maybe. I'm because, not sure. Because John Paul Jones was rocking that Prince Valiant thing. Not to the same, you know, I, I mean, it was a little more uniform than John Fogarty's bowl cut, but it was in the yeah. same vein, right? It's true. They they looked like a couple of uh, stately lords with that, that <laughs> fucking hair, man. It was so, it's so weird. <laughs> when are you going to comb your hair into that? That's what I'm I don't know. About. I could do it. It might be kind of, I don't know, straw-like now because, you know, I'm old and gray. Yeah. Have but the gray Prince Valiant. I, I could probably know, do man. it. I, I think he should. I, yeah. I mean, it could it could be, you know, it, it could be one of the great comeback hairdos. I'm just saying. Mm -hmm. It could be, man. I'm, I might have to do it in honor of those guys. Yeah. So anyway, OK, so back to the back to the history. Cosmos Factory, July 1970, number one, four times platinum. Uh, and uh, two more number two singles, uh, Travel and Band and Who Will Stop the Rain. Again, double A side. Number two, the single sold a million copies is platinum. Up Around the Bend, backed with Run Through the Jungle, only made it to number four, but again was platinum. And then Looking Out My Back Door, backed with Long As I Can See the Light, was another number two. So I think it's like five. Yeah. Now, there are other artists that have had more number two songs, like Madonna, but she's actually had a number one song. Creedence never had a number one song. It's kind of criminal. There's a great episode of one of my favorite podcasts I highly recommend to listeners, Hit Parade, where you can, it's all about Creedence. And it talks about what songs were number one. And almost all of them are terrible. There's, I, I forget, there might be, there might be a Beatles song in there, but most of them are just like stuff you've never heard of, or just like, I don't know, Tommy James and the Shondells. I do like them, but, uh, or Dizzy. I like that, but I don't think it's as good as like fucking Fortunate Son. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, but at any rate, uh, so, you know, they they followed this up in 1970 with Pendulum. Now, this was an album where there started to be some tensions in the band uh, because, you know, they were they were jealous. The other guys were jealous. John was getting all the attention because he did all the work. He wrote yeah. all the songs. He would even tell them what to play. Um, he would tell Stu what to play. And Stu really had trouble with things like um, Down on the Corner because it, it it it's kind of a funky rhythm and he couldn't get the rhythm down. But if you watch that Royal Albert Hall, they're all really pretty solid. You know, like John Tom Fogarty's basic, but he's not a bad rhythm player. And Stu is pretty good. And Doug is decent, you know, yeah. but but they're decent. But they're not. Obviously, if you watch that concert, there's one guy who just towers above the others. I mean, he's playing like a maniac. He sings incredibly. His charisma is just way greater than the others. 
Although Stu looks pretty awesome. Let's just face it with those granny glasses. He's kind of got that look. <laughs> yeah, it makes you want to buy weed from him. I'm telling yeah, you. Yeah, it's true. It's true. And then Doug, of course, as we kind of alluded to, once one tale that uh, John Fogarty says, like the first time they ever went on tour, he went to go. Uh, I think him and Doug were sharing a hotel room. And he went to go to the room and he just heard these groans and moans. Within like 10 minutes, Doug had got some hippie groupie and was going <laughs> at it. <laughs> All right. So so the band, you know, they they wanted to do something different. The other band members wanted to participate more. Now, they didn't start doing that yet, but they wanted to do something a little more experimental. Because obviously Credence's albums are pretty basic, right? They're pretty yeah. basic. They're short. Uh, they're basically made up of two to three minute songs for the most part. Now they did start to stretch out a little bit. This is after the first album, which is a little more, the first couple albums, which are a little more extended, but the last few were more basic. And then on Cosmos, they do have a long version of, I heard it through the grapevine, which is like something like 10 minutes long, but that's pretty straightforward really. Uh, but in Pendulum, they tried to do some weirder things. Um, and they, they had this one song at the end called Rude Awakening, number two, which is kind of their <laughs> That's experimental. What you earlier, right? Right, right. Uh, they, it's, it's, yeah. Uh, and, and it's funny because uh, they all kind of did kooky things. It was kind of like their revolution number nine, but it's a little more listenable than that. If you know, you know, the Beatles experimental collage thing that John Lennon did. Um, it's a little more listenable. It's more musical, but it's, it's probably their worst song. Because it's just not Credence. And it's funny because um, John said that Doug's one uh, contribution to that was he farted into the tape. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, let's not underestimate the value of that. But right. So, Pendulum is probably the weakest of their recent, you know, their albums since the debut. Um, it does have one are two great songs on it. One that might even, some people think is even their greatest song, which is Have You Ever Seen the Rain? Uh, Backed with Hey Tonight, which is a great rocker, of course. Yeah. Uh, number eight on the charts, three times platinum, so another big hit. Now, after this time, there was kind of a band mutiny. The band, the other guys were practicing together. Like when they recorded Pendulum, before they recorded Pendulum, they started meeting together just to practice with each other without John. Um, and part of the practice. reason, yeah, part of the reason was they needed practice. And he actually said that it was good. They were better. He's like, I, he didn't have to do as much when they were recording Pendulum because they were actually pretty solid at this point. But they kind of had a mutiny and said, we want to do more. We want to write songs. And then also around this time, Tom Fogarty just left. Um, he always was jealous of his brother, right? Because he was far outshone by him. And he's kind of a weird person anyway, as we'll get to. Um, the, the other three guys... You know, I'm getting mostly John's side of the story. If they would write a book, I might, you know, hear the other side. But it sounds like they weren't really concerned with the music. They were more about money. And we'll see that some of their decisions in the future really were not great, uh, you know, with how they related with Saul's aunts. So Tom left. So there was a little delay before the next album because the two guys, according to John Fogarty, they insisted that they write songs, too. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because you look, John Fogarty's like, you're in the biggest band in the world and you've never written a song before and you want to write a song for that band. I can kind of see his point, right? I mean, it's like, you've never written a song. Now, Mardi Gras, 
comes out in April 1972. And this song is made up of songs by Stu Cook, Doug Clifford, and John Fogarty. Guess whose songs are the best? Mm. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and say John's. Yeah. So he had two really great songs on there. Um, and again, a double A side, their last hit, Sweet Hitchhiker, backed with Someday Never Comes. Both are Number great. six on the chart, both uh, incredible. Now, if you want to listen to uh, see why John Fogarty is kind of the most important person in this band by Light Years, just listen to the other shit on Mardi Gras. There is a song <laughs> called Sail Away. Uh, I was going to put a clip of it, but I didn't <laughs> want to tarnish our podcast with it. Song yeah. by Stu. It is like one of the worst songs I've ever heard in my life. Really, you got to go listen to this uh, if you can get through it. Doug's songs are bad, too. Doug's got a better voice, um, but they're just awful, right? So after the album came out, then Stu Cook and Doug Clifford were saying, well, John made us do this. Mm. You know, then they're starting to say he made us do this because the backlash was so bad. The, the critics hated it. So after at this point, the band just imploded, right? They just completely imploded. And um, so John, uh, you know, I, I just, uh, just a few things post-band. I'll just go really quickly. Um, so after the band broke up, of course, Fantasy wanted to milk them for all they were worth. So they had a few compilations released. Credence Gold in 1972. Uh, that was platinum. And then they followed that with more Credence Gold in 1973, which was gold. They released Live in Europe in 1973. That didn't really chart. Chronicle, 1976. This is their, it only made it to number 18 at the time, but this is the, by far their biggest seller. It's actually Diamond, um, which is, I believe is 15, 10 or 15 million. I think it's 15 million. Um, and, um, We'll get that sorted out. Uh, but but yeah, that's the one most people know. And then they released uh, an album called The Concert in 1980, which is also platinum, right? Uh, so John was still with Fantasy, even though, uh, you know, all the stuff that had gone on and, and, and whatnot, he still stayed with Fantasy. And he recorded this album uh, called Blue Ridge Rangers in 1973 that was like a country album that had a lot of covers on it. Um, and he played all the instruments himself. So he painstakingly learned how to play drums and bass and all these things, although he could probably play bass because he taught Stu probably everything he knows. Um, and this album is pretty critically acclaimed. He would he would make a, a sequel to it in the 2000s. Um, but it was funny because when it came out, he had a fan come up to him and show him the record that he bought. He's all like, bought this album and it's all fucked up. And there was like a dent in the vinyl, like a, a bubble. And John went to the record store and found that he bought he got one and it had a bubble in it. And he went to uh, Fantasy and he figured that Fantasy was buying the cheapest kind of vinyl possible for all his albums. So he was really outraged by this. Uh, he followed that up with a solo album in 75 called John Fogarty, again, playing all the instruments. And he was in the process of recording an album called Hoodoo, but he kind of had some disco on there. You can go listen to this album on YouTube. Uh, I think there are outtakes. I didn't even listen to it, so I don't know how bad it is, but he said it was really bad and he shelved it. Um, so around this time, uh, well, we'll get into the, the fantasy stuff in a bit, but let me just talk about what the other um, members were doing. So Doug Clifford recorded a single album for fantasy called Cosmo. I have not listened to this, uh, but it's got a lot of covers and it's supposed to be pretty bad and it didn't do anything. Uh, I think Stu Cook plays on it as well. Um, oh, Stu, Stu Cook has one thing he did that was great outside of Credence. He produced an album by Rocky Erickson. Roxy, Rocky Erickson was the 
who I've seen live. I'm a big fan of his. He was the lead singer and and lead songwriter of a band called the 13th Floor Elevators, kind of a 60s garage band. And he had a solo career, um, uh, Rocky Erickson uh, solo career where he song, sang these weird songs about monsters and shit. He's great. Um, and he... Um, he was his his album, the evil one, was produced by Stu Cook, which is a great album. And I so that's the one thing Stu Cook did where I'm like, oh, okay, he did something decent there. Um, but Tom Fogarty had the kind of other than John had the kind of most prolific solo career. It wasn't successful, um, but he actually got together with members of the Jerry Garcia band and they made a few albums. And and some people like them. I think most people think they're kind of mediocre. Um, but, um, yeah, I'll, I'll, as far as Tom goes, he would, oh, uh, I'm jumping ahead of myself. Let's skip. So obviously the, oh yeah, we should talk about this now because the death of Tom. So Tom actually ended up dying of AIDS in 1990. And the reason was he got a blood transfusion that was infected. So it's very sad. Um, and he ended up dying. And after he died, uh, the two other guys of Creedence, Stu and, uh, you know, they had wanted to reunite with John, but John didn't want to reunite with them because they had sided with Saul on several disputes. And we'll get to those in a minute. But they ended up forming this band CCR or Creedence Clearwater Revisited, which I've never listened to. Yeah. Did you listen to them? Yeah, a little bit. So it, it's a series of singers. And, you know, other band members that made his tour around trying to capitalize on John's work. It's the right. worst piece of shit ever. It don't, I would just ask our listeners not to ever listen or go to the shows at, you know, the State Fair or whatever. There are a bunch of decent Credence cover bands out there. Just go see them because they're better. You know, it's just a, it's just a, these two guys who are just trying to, you know, like it's like the marginal bassist and the decent drummer from Credence and a band with other musicians playing Credence music. Let's go see a Creedence cover band. I mean, yeah. it's like all these, it, I mean, it's like all these, you know, we, we have this ongoing discussion about um, when there's no original members in a band, is it just a cover band, you know, like with Foreigner and stuff like that? Here you have original members, but who the fuck cares? Because right. they, they, they didn't, they barely played on the albums. You know what I mean? To, to the point you were making about John doing all the, you know, background singing and stuff like that. And I guess he's probably played play bass on most of the albums too. Um, you know, if not drums. So anyway, just, it's just horrible. And it's just them not giving a shit. I mean, there's multiple reports of them really not giving a shit about anything about, about Credence except the money. And in fact, Stu Cook told John that directly at one point when John was like begging him to not keep siding with, you know, fantasy and, and, and Saul's ants and all this other stuff. And he's just like, yeah, you know, I just care about the money. I don't care about the music. It's like, okay, but he's out there touring as Creedence Clearwater Revisited. What a bunch of garbage. So fuck you, Stu, and fuck you, Doug. So there you go. So keep in mind, too, during all this time, John has none of the rights to his catalog at all. Uh, Saul Zantz owns his songs, and he is making the money off of the Creedence songs. John is making not even barely any money off of them at all. He probably uh, but made John, performance royalties, but certainly not any of the publishing, right? Which yeah, no publishing, which again, think about how, think about Proud Mary and how many people have covered that. And sure. And all this different, you know, all these different songs are played on the radio like crazy. So I'm not sure. It's hard to kind of gauge how much he got, but it was very little compared to his effort. He just, he had entered in a bad deal when he was a young, desperate guy 
and he'd been taken advantage of. And, and these guys were, you know, trying to get their money all the time. Um, so he, John did, uh, you know, he, he was in a depression kind of, and he, he kind of became an alcoholic and all this stuff. But around 1985, he did have a huge comeback with, with center field, which was a pretty, I just never understood why he never got, I mean, look, I'm on John's side for sure. And all this, but it's just weird to me that he never got a decent lawyer who could He got lawyers, but I think it's just the contract was the contract or whatever. But yeah, it seems like, it seems like a judge would just be like, this contract can't be valid. You know, it's it, but he had multiple lawyers. He even got like Bill Graham to negotiate uh, Saul to sell him the songs. Mm. He wanted to just buy the the songwriting uh, from him, but he just wanted such an insane amount of money, right? So he he eventually got it. And we'll talk about how how he did that. But center field, he you know he was fighting with Saul Zance during this whole time, and he was actually. The other band members were kind of suing him too. And there were, you know, he sued them over Credence Clearwater Revisited. And they were very litigious with each other. And when we get to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, that will explain why that happened. But but we're jumping the gun here. So center field, obviously, it had the old man is down the road. We're going to talk about that lawsuit in a minute. Um, and it had Rock and Roll Girls, which I think is a fucking amazing song. Centerfield is amazing. Centerfield is amazing song. I think the one detraction of Centerfield is the production is so 80s with those fucking hand claps, yeah. man. I can't. It's too bad because the songwriting is great. Uh, he followed this up with a really bad album called Eye of the Zombie. Um, and he was really messed up. He had been married when he was really young and he had separated from his wife, but he had gotten back together with her for the kids. He had kids and he. But at this point, he was he divorced his wife and he met this other young woman and got married. He was starting to become happier. He spent the huge part of the early 90s making this album called Blue Moon Swamp. This is kind of like his equivalent of like Tom Petty's Wildflowers. Yeah. A lot of people like this album. I think it's OK. Um, I don't think the songs are as memorable as his best stuff. OK, so as far as the fantasy stuff, it was still going on, the, you know, during the late 70s, the whole um Castle Bank, uh, Cayman Islands thing happened. Uh, you know, he was suing fantasy for the song rights. Now, during all this time, Saul Zance is making all this money off of Creedence. So what does he do? He produces some of the greatest films of all time. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Amadeus, well, the English patient isn't one of the greatest, but it was the best picture, right? So he produces all these films. He buys the rights to the Lords of the Rings films. So he made all that money. I mean, all of this was financed by one person, John yeah. Fogarty who got none of these profits. It's just insane. It's got, just criminal. He got flannel fucked is what he got. Yeah. And then, of course, there were two loss, major lawsuits that happened in the 80s with, with uh, Saul Zantz and John Fogarty. One of them was Saul Zantz suing John Fogarty for plagiarizing himself. It's so bizarre. Yeah. So John Fogarty wrote a song on Centerfield called The Old Man is Down the Road. Uh, and he said it was a plagiar, uh, Saul Zantz sued him for plagiarizing his own song, Run Through the Jungle, which Saul Zantz owned. And, and this, and, uh, and, and you know who tipped off Saul Zantz to it sounding similar? Doug Clifford. Uh, oh, I, I heard it was either Doug Clifford or Stu Cook. I've heard Tom Fogarty. Um, it was one of those guys. Yeah. Tipped Doug him off. Clifford went over to, you know, his buddy Saul Zantz and said, hey, you know, 
the song, you know, run, you know, run through the jungle sounds just like, you know, John's new song. And it was, it was Mr. Doug Clifford himself. So there you go. That's what. So I this, like. this, this, uh, case went all the way to the Supreme court, by the way. Yeah. And, uh, of course, John won because it's absolutely ridiculous. Um, it's, it's a different song and it doesn't matter. It's his song. It's so yeah. stupid. Yeah. But they they actually went through really the lawyers went through this crazy thing of like analyzing how songs work. And, you know, it was just crazy that anyone would just not laugh this out of court right away. If I were a judge, I'd be like, I'm not going to fucking try this shit. This is yeah. bullshit. Um, and at the same time, there was a defamation lawsuit uh, against John because he had a song on center field called Zance Can't Dance. Zance can't dance, but he'll steal your money. There's another song on there called Mr. Greed, you know, obviously all about Saul Zance. And uh, he was forced to kind of change that to Vance can't dance, (laughs) even though you could still find the original, you know, out there. Um, So during all this time, though, all of the other three guys sided with Saul Zance. Including his brother, Tom. Including his brother, right? And they what they also did, which which is uh, what happened... Uh, that really pissed John off was Credence had this voting, this thing where they all had to be unanimous to have Credence's music be used for anything like commercials or anything like that. And he saw that he was at some shell station and there was some cheesy compilation of 60s hits and he saw that Credence was on there. And he was like, what the hell? And he found out that all of the three other members had sold their voting rights to Saul Zantz. So Saul Zantz said, I have a majority, so I'm going to do whatever I want with Credence. And he put it on commercials and all this shit. And John was really pissed. So when um, when the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame came around and Credence was inducted in 1993, I believe, um, they basically, John refused to perform with them, right? Because the other two guys wanted to perform with him because Tom had died uh, three years before. And they refused to he refused to perform with them because of this, because he sold them out and because they constantly sided with Saul and because, you know, later they would also screw him over with CC revisited. Um, So he basically did an all star performance. I forget who was there, but he was I might have been Bruce Bruce Springsteen because he was he's really good friends with Bruce Springsteen. They both are mutual admiration society kind of thing. Yeah. I, by the way, the, the, there's a bunch of different conflicting stories about how this went down and if they knew it was happening or not. But I read one story that I just love, so I'm going to choose to believe this, that mm-hmm. uh, Stu Cook shows up at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with his bass, and, you know, Doug Clifford is, you know, thinking there's going to be a drum set them to play, and they're getting ready right. to go and play, and then they're like, yeah, yeah, you're not playing. They're like, what do you mean we're not playing? We're just inducted. It's like, yeah, John's not going to play with you. And they look up and he's on getting on the stage with Bruce Springsteen and whoever else he was jamming with. And they were just sitting there just like fucking, like Doug Clifford said something like, he goes, I wanted to punch his his face in, you know, like all this kind of stuff. I just love that. Absolutely fisted. Yeah, John Fogarty absolutely fisted Stu and Doug. You know, it's so great because they totally deserved it. And they just had to sit there and watch John play these songs with Bruce Springsteen and, you know, uh, fucking Ringo Starr, whoever was in the, yeah. know, playing, playing that. So I, I just think I just love that story. And, and just Stu standing there, like with a tear running down his face, holding his bass, that, that just brings joy to my uh, heart. You know? Yeah, I mean, these guys are real, real pieces of work. Um, you know, as far as what happened, uh, Saul Zance died 
another company picked up the uh, fantasy label and they just gave John back his songs uh, as a gesture um, because probably because the, they they had some morals and a conscience, which is yeah. not something that Saul Zantz or the other members of Credence appear to have had. So yeah. that's kind of, you know, the history, John, you know, he's gone on, he, he wouldn't play the songs for years. He, you know, when he toured for center field or whatever, he just plays center field. And of course the whole crowd wants to hear his songs, but he had been at this jam in the early nineties with Bob Dylan. And uh, I think it was Bruce Springsteen. I forget who, um, but they were all playing their own songs. And then Bob Dylan said, you got to play proud Mary, man. And John's like, I don't play those songs. And John, and, and then Bob said, if you don't play proud Mary, it's going to become an Ike and Tina song because of their version right so he he eventually relented and now he plays those songs live yeah but he put um, on the wig first and then played it just as a <laughs> tribute to <laughs> yeah that's right all right man so that's right. it for the history i mean there's probably more details there and you know anybody can read his book i mean it it really the the weird business shit is hard to even wrap your head around and i think that's how it was designed it was designed to hoodwink the band um, at any rate, that's that's the history. So why don't we jump into what we think about Credence? We've talked about this. The band is solid, you know, at, at live, especially at the Royal Albert Hall, which is late in their career, actually, relatively speaking. Um, they were really good, a solid band, but the band is John's band. It's all about John. They're just his backup band. There's no question about that. But they sounded good as his backup band. And of course, John sounded great. And I don't know if I'd ever seen them perform live or I had, or, you know, I never saw them actually perform live, but on video or anything like that. Um, until the Royal Albert Hall, where I watched the whole thing and I was just like, fuck, they were, it was a great show. Like I was just imagine being in London in 1970 and, and, and seeing that it would have been a great show. You would, I would have walked out of there going like, fuck, they were great. Like, um, you know, other, the, their co-inductees, by the way, that year in 93, you know who it was? Who? Cream. So, oh, wow. uh, yeah. So another, I mean, I know you don't like cream. I, I love cream. Well, I think to... cream, I think cream is one of those bands. I kind of like keep in the back pocket where I'm going to get it at some point. I yeah. do like some songs. I just think, I just don't get the hype. I, I do like a couple of the songs. Yeah. We'll, we'll have to cover them. I, yeah, we'll do them. Yeah. I'll have to really reevaluate them too. I really dislike the members individually. Um, <laughs> with the exception of Jack Bruce, but like, not yeah. a huge Eric Clapton guy. Um, all, I mean, he's talent-wise, obviously, he's great. Ginger Baker, same, great talent, but just a fucking obnoxious prick. Um, anyway, uh, back to Credence. Uh, really impressed with their live sound. I my, my enjoyment of hearing about Doug Clifford's road hose was funny. <laughs> <laughs> mostly, mostly because, I mean, look, the, the whole groupie thing of that era, it's been done before, like, read any Led Zeppelin stuff, you know, all that. It's not that interesting, but it's the idea. The thing to me that was funniest was, you know, you made a comment like, like these are not like probably the top tier of the groupies of the, of the <laughs> rock true. world. Yeah. Yeah, and so yeah. just imagining the kind of, you know, hippie chicks that Dead Clifford was pulling down, you know, on, on, you know, at holiday ends and in 1968 was making me laugh um, a lot. I, I, you know, I was just, kind of thinking about that that made me laugh uh plus uh, doug clifford's such a co- you know he's just this big kind of dan haggerty grizzly yeah, bear grizzly adams looking <laughs> dude you know it's just funny to think about yeah yeah <laughs> yeah i was probably 
the you know the ladies probably you know I don't know they should have <laughs> they should have aimed higher. Let me just yeah. say that way. Uh, anyway, the <laughs> the John being ripped off for for plagiarizing his own songs just in bends my mind. Like I I, I can't even imagine. I mean, legally, conceptually, I can see it, but I mean, just like from a from an art point of view, from a yeah, from a you know, just a conscience point of view, it's just ridiculous. And and actually, the Supreme Court, instead of working against the citizens of the U.S. and the people of the world, uh, they're worked in for rationality in this case. Um, the songs I want to play a couple. Let's talk about the music, right? So we've been talking about all these songs. I actually want to play some of them, right? So first off, I want to talk about Bad Moon Rising. Great, right? Yeah, the um, lyrics are amazing on that song, too. Apparently, at times he would sing, there's a bathroom on the right. I don't know if that's true. <laughs> <laughs> but that, but I think, I mean, really, I'm, that's not a joke. Like, I think, you know, he, he and a couple of times he was jerking around singing, there's a bathroom on the right. It's a bad, there's a bad moon on the rise. Anyway, great song there. Susie Q, I mentioned, um, as being early influence on my fledgling, still fledgling guitar playing. So here is uh, Susie Q and the guitar solo. that guitar solo right yeah it's it's fucking amazing um and another one of my favorite songs by them uh probably certainly my top two or three i love this song down on the corner oh you talked about oh yeah here's this the idea uh, so all and, those vocals john yeah. fogarty yeah all yeah. the background 
he, he mentioned about the courthouse, something that he had a lot of experience with, unfortunately. <laughs> Dude, yeah. But again, these songs, like you play Bad Moon Rising, Suzy Q down the corner, all completely different from each yeah. other. Yeah. But all, all just great. like completely all memorable. Yeah. yeah, totally. Um, uh, so the other song I mentioned, you know, uh, we've said a couple times on this show so far, Have You Ever Seen the Rain? Um, this is maybe my favorite Creedence song. Uh, I think that's changes. common. It's yeah. it's often cited as like his masterpiece, you yeah. know. Oh, here it is. Couldn't be simpler musically. Yeah, but great man. Song. I mean, that's the thing he would say. He would say, when I write a song, I the thing I know, the, the skill I have is I know if it's going to be good. Like, I yeah. know if it's going to be a hit. Like, he just had that instinct. And when he heard the other songs by the other guys on Mardi Gras, <laughs> he's like, I knew they weren't going to be. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, may, yeah, may, maybe that wasn't so hard to perceive that. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, fair enough, though. Yeah. But great song. Uh, we mentioned the dude. We mentioned uh, the scene where he is uh, driving in his beater car, banging on the roof, listening to Looking Out My Back Door. Again, one of my favorite Creedence songs for sure. Um, this scene, I'm going to play a, a little bit of it. I, well, I'll play it and then I'll talk about this scene for a second. So here's the dude. First of all, so good. That's probably my favorite scene in that movie, I have to say. And him trying to, you know, light his roach, trying to smoke it. He's drinking a beer. He's driving down the street. He's listening to Credence. Like, you've never seen an individual more happy in life than that. And uh, I get it because that song makes you want to, you know, smoke a, smoke a roach and, and drink a beer, not drop it in your lap and then put out the fire. Right, your right. Beer and then crash, you crash your car. But, like, I, I love that scene so much. And I, for whatever reason, why he's hitting the roof of the car listening to this, just it's just a, probably something that Jeff Bridges improvised. But I love it so much, and it oh, just yeah, it's fits the song so 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 much. And uh, obviously, the inspiration for "Dooting Out My Back Door" uh, at Teenage Jeff would have uh, nodded in approval. Um, finally, the last song I'm going to play, I'll talk about one other one is is this great great song as well, which is this. Whoa, Devil's on the loose. Better run, 
So that obviously was the old man down the road. <laughs> <laughs> That's run, right. Run through the jungle. Now, uh, a lot of people think, and I did too, by the way, uh, that this song was about Vietnam. And it got, it's always in movies where they're talking about some, you know, war, Vietnam, especially jungle fighting scene. But John actually says this song is not about Vietnam. Fortunate Son certainly is. Um, but this is about gun control. And I want to read what John had to say about this song because I thought it was interesting. He said, the thing I wanted to talk about was gun control and the proliferation of guns. I remember reading around that time that there was one gun for every man, woman, and child in America, which I found staggering. So somewhere in the song, I think I said 200 million guns are loaded. Not that anyone else has the answer, but I, I did not have the answer to the question. I just had the question. I just thought it was disturbing that it was such a jungle for our citizens to walk around in our own country, at least having to be aware there are so many private guns owned by some responsible and many, many uh, irresponsible uh, people. And that was what, in, in the late 60s? And here we are 50-something years later. Um, anyway... I promised we weren't going to get too political, but yeah. And, and before uh, right wingers get their panties in a bunch, John is a hunter. You know, he goes, he, he likes to shoot uh, poor defenseless animals too. So yeah, you well, can feel good you, about him. That. Yeah. Uh, like that's not okay with me. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. um, nevertheless, uh, that I just found really kind of interesting and, and staggering. Maybe he considers himself one of the responsible people and maybe he is, but you know, shooting and anyway, uh, we will move on from there. I won't go into a thing there. The last song I want to talk about just briefly is Lodi. Another great song. Um, obviously one of his classics and um, one of the songs that when you listen to, it sounds like some guy from the South talking about some Southern town, but Lodi is actually a Northern California town. That's right. And, uh, and it is it is kind of a drab little town that's uh, uh, yeah. kind of near... But it's like in between San Francisco and Sacramento. Yeah, somewhere in five there. Or, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm sure we went there to look at a bunch of cranes. There, these, these birds come in once a year and they land all over the fields. But it's like it's basically very rural. You know, there's like farms and shit. Yeah. But it, it yeah, I could see being stuck there. Yeah. And and not, and if, you know, you're playing gigs there. I'm sure it's not great. Yeah, um, I'm Doug Clifford probably would have liked it because it's probably <laughs> that's right true. His alley. But anyway, our, our value, final evaluation, like CCR compared with their peers, especially like hippie rock crap like the dead or, um, you know, the 1810 fruit gum company bullshit or like, uh, come yeah. on, come on. Like I, I can see John Fogarty, like, especially in Berkeley, you know, out of time going, who are these idiots and who listens to this? And he, you know, uh, John, I'm with you, man, because your stuff was like so towers above it. Um, just incredible. Um, as far as valuation, and you alluded to this at the beginning of the show. So so obviously there's no surprise that, you know, Slip and I are both mo man, mammoth, monumental uh, CCR fans. But I was trying to think about this. It's like, is this going to 50 years from now? Are people, you know, the lawsuit stuff, no one's going to know. The, you know, maybe the long arc of all the hippie crap rock stuff is people aren't going to know. It's hopefully going to fade from people's consciousness. No one will know who Jerry Garcia is, I hope. Um, <laughs> sorry, all you dead fans. Um, and, and so forth. But I was trying to imagine like 50 years from now, are people going to listen to this music and think it's good? And I think unequivocally the answer is yes. These songs are absolutely fucking classic. I think they put the classic in classic rock. Like when you, if you are a fan of the, the future and you like classic rock genre, 
you're going to like Credence because there's, it's synonymous. There's nothing about these songs that aren't great. And I think, you know, to the degree that classic rock is still a thing of, of this era that people listen to in the future, I think Credence will be right up there. I mean, I'll certainly be listening to them for the rest of my life. I think people will rediscover them and rediscover them and rediscover them. And they just have a, a timeless, uh, uh, you know, sound. And, you know, finally, I would say, thumb long, of course, CCR rules. And that's because John Fogarty is a legend. Um, these songs will just continue to be the epitome. And they deserve credence, especially John deserves a, a, a you know, a top, t- top tier seat at the table of classic rock gods, even though one of Doug Clifford's roadhose is probably under the table. So <laughs> that's all I got, uh, handing it over to you. All right. So, yeah, I I pretty much agree 100%. Um, I mean, I'll even go as far as to say anyone who doesn't think Creedence stands the test of time isn't worth listening to. You know, it's kind of like not liking R.E.M. or the Smiths. You know, it's like the same thing. I'm just uh, huh. <laughs> um, we'll get to those bands. Maybe never. Uh, OK. Anyways, I think R. I do think they kind of, Smith, so. All right. Well, we can do R.E.M. versus the Smiths. Jeff's two least favorite things. Well, Actually, we could we should do a least favorite episode. Yeah. There's um, a lot of things on that because list. I'm sure we'll disagree about some of those things I just mentioned. We may disagree um, about the rate, uh, Who are you anymore, man? I know, I know. Well, I always, I liked R.E.M. and the Smiths more, I think, in the 80s than I do now. Um, but The Dead, I definitely like more now. But we're, we're going to get to The Dead. Yeah, we'll get to The Dead. Um, okay, so I think Credence are kind of the great American band. And it's down to John Fogarty. Um, I think the only reason to short them would be the fucking terrible three other guys. Um, and they're not terrible. Right. They're they're good players. They're solid players, but they're just assholes. Yeah. Um, and I think CC revisited is 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 a travesty. Right. Yeah. Um, and of course, they the whole Saul Zance thing is just awful to read about. It's it's such a traumatic thing for him to have gone through this great genius songwriter, this great performer to, you know, be sucked in by this this viper. You know, the good thing is. Everyone knows it's John Fogarty. And that I think that's what our job is here today, is to emphasize this is the guy. It's not the other three dudes. They're decent players. But really, it's all about this one guy. And he's a great artist. I think, look, I think if John Fogarty had come out in the 70s, it would be like Tom Petty, yeah. right? It wouldn't be, you don't call them the heartbreakers. You call them Tom Petty and the heartbreakers. Why? Because he's the guy, yeah. even though they're a great band. It would have been John Fogarty the and the Gollywogs, right? Yeah, same. exactly. Exactly. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, I'm going to go do the same thing Jeff did and just kind of celebrate a few of these songs and kind of talk about them. Let's start out with one. This might be my favorite. It's tough. I love so many of these songs. Um, and, of course, I'm going to weigh, weigh it heavily toward the hits. Because I do think those are the strongest songs, but I might play one kind of oddball track. Um, At any rate, let's start out with Green River.
Yeah, so I, I fucking love that. Yeah, great. I mean, look, it's it's tempting to kind of make fun of this dude from El Cerrito kind of playing like he's some hybrid version of Hank Williams, uh, Lead Belly and Robert Johnson. Yeah. But, you know, these songs are so good that they're as good as those source material. I mean, they're as good as Hank Williams. They're as good as anybody, yeah. you know, and and he kind of nails that he kind of synthesizes all these things into something very original and very him. And I, I think also his lyrics are so evocative. I love lyrics where you can, I always talk about this on the episodes, like you could picture everything. I mean, it's, it's comical stomping at the log where a catfish bite and, yeah. you know, I can hear the bullfrog calling me and all this shit, but I love barefoot girls dancing in the moonlight. I, I just have always loved that line. And I just love the, wow yeah. kind of vocals yeah. um i'm with you and I feel you. yeah yeah it's 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 like his fantasy world you know it's like you can make fun of that but i mean like robert plant wasn't fucking living in middle earth either well kind you of, know it's like but yeah just your point yeah but i mean they, these <laughs> bands like whatever john anderson of yes yeah, are fucking yeah, you know yeah, rush sure. with their, yeah. their fucking kubla khan and shit yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just his world. Yeah. That this is his world he wanted to be in, you know? Yeah. And um he really nails it and it's just such a memorable song and uh just to, the way it's and the way it's arranged like with the kind of echoey vocals and stuff and I think Suzy Q is a a masterpiece of that. I love the backup vocals on Suzy Q, the weird oh, uh, yeah. you know that they do and, and the weird panning and, that they have, you know, in the stereo. Yeah, 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 it's 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 kind of like okay, we're still trying to be a little psychedelic but it's kind of raw. Yeah. You know, it's it's really cool. And this of course this is one song I was tempted to play. I didn't want to, you know, we can't just sit there and play 30 songs. Go listen to Chronicle, you know, yeah. just if you've never heard this shit and you're just hearing a little bit of this and going, oh, this made this sounds good to me. Go listen to Chronicle. It's got everything you want to hear uh as an intro. And then you can go listen to some of the deeper cuts because the albums are all pretty solid. But this has got one of the best B-sides ever, Commotion. This is one of the hardest rocking uh Creedence songs. Yeah, you know, great. it's one of his greatest vocals. Okay, we can't talk about Creedence without talking about the greatest protest song ever written. I don't think anything even comes close. I love Buffalo Springfield, you know, for what it's worth. Great song. I still think that Fortunate Son is the greatest protest song ever written. It's got the best lyrics. It's the hardest rocking. Uh, it's got an incredible message. It's really, I think, stood the test of time more than any of the other kind of 60s songs, because I think it still rings true today. Um, let's listen to it. Yeah, and Stephen Stills, you can go suck a bag of dicks. How about that? <laughs> What's wrong with Stephen Stills? <laughs>
Yeah. Well, you were saying course, that this is better than for what it's worth. So that's, you know, Stephen Stills song, right? So I know, but you were <laughs> making me laugh. <laughs> Stephen Stills, you know, that um, at any rate, I love Stephen Stills, Stills I like, too. I do but... too. I do too. I love Buffalo Springfield. I have like yeah. several. I was know, joking. I have Steven, a couple of their calm records. Down, calm down. All right. I like CSNY too. Me too. But anyway, uh, you know, look. It's it's really ironic this song because John Fogarty did get out of going to Vietnam, yeah. kind of like a rich kid. But it is, you know, this song is pretty much about George W. Bush. Yeah. You know, if you read the lyrics, and and he, you know, and Trump there too, is by a, the way, same. Yeah, Trump too. Yeah. There there is a bio about George W. Bush that actually is called "Fortunate Son," mm. um, named after this song. But you know, it's just an it, it just captures so much about blind patriotism and you know the inequities between the classes and and stuff like that when it comes to war and i think it really is timeless uh it obviously was about its time but and it's just a great song it just rocks it's one of their harder rocking songs and hard to argue with you kind of have to talk about it i mean the lyrics again i ain't no millionaire son it ain't me it ain't me um it's really man it just it's just really stands the test of time for me. One of those songs that stands out. Now I want to play a weird one um, because, you know, we talk a lot about the hits and those are the kind of the strongest songs really, but there's some cool other weird songs. Uh, I love a song from Pendulum called Pagan Baby. This is like a really simple jam song that kind of just builds. And I think we'll play a clip of it. I think you really need to listen to the whole thing to really get the sense. But I just love John's kind of singing on this. He really rocks on this. And it's kind of just a slow, simple build. And the band sounds really good too. So let's listen to a little bit of this. Anyway, it's really cool. I, you know, if you listen to the whole thing, it's just kind of a jam session, you know, but I just love it. It's such a great rock, you know, straight ahead rock voice. Really? Is yeah. He, he, and his guitar tone is so good. I love, I love the way his guitar sounds almost on just about on everything he ever did, you know, a uh, really great band. And, and the band is holding it down. I mean, not, you know, we diss these guys a lot, but they sound really good on that. Yeah. You know, they're pretty tight. The bass line's really cool. Um, again, a lot of that is John Fogarty kind of telling the guys what to do. Although I'm not sure how much he told Doug Clipper what to do. Cause he kind of complained like, 
about who will stop the rain because there's a lot of drums on it. But I actually like the drums on who will stop the rain. So, you know, I don't agree with them. I think Doug does a good job on that and it kind of makes it more powerful. It's the power of the beard. So the, yeah, maybe it's the power of the beard. Yeah. Um, at any rate, uh, the last one I want to play and I'll talk about a little more, I'll, you know, uh, before I kind of wrap things up. It's just this song just rocks so hard and I've always loved it. Again, it's up there with Green River for me for my favorite. Uh, another this is another one from Cosmos Fact. Cosmos Factory is one of those albums where it's kind of longer and there's some more filler like covers like Ubi Doobie and um, I forget the uh, uh, Accuse Me Baby or whatever it is. Um, uh, th there's a little filler, but there's like the, the, the songs, the strengths are higher than any album, I think. And, you know, obviously uh, we played um, uh, Looking Out My Back Door right from there. But this is Up Around the Bend. You can hear a Tim doing the background vocals too. Yeah, totally. And I love the wind yeah. and all that. Um, and obviously that opening riff is immortal, right? Yeah. It's one of the great riffs of all time. Uh, you know, and and again, they're just great. We're just kind of celebrating them. And I think, you know, most people who've heard Creedence kind of know some of these songs we played. If you, if again, you can go into the albums, I'd say every album is worth a listen. And even Mardi Gras, just so you can hear the contrast between John Fogarty and the others, um, even though Mardi Gras is a really tough listen. <laughs> uh, just some other highlights. I, I Another song I kind of considered playing, I don't have a clip, is uh, Long As I Can See the Light, which is one of those double A side, yeah. you know, it was the B side of Looking Out My Back Door. His vocals are incredible on this song. It kind of shows what he could do with like kind of a more kind of gospel inspired song. Uh, again, the band, as I mentioned, does all these cover versions and they're all good. Suzy Q, I put a spell on you. I heard it through Grapevine. Actually, I used to hate this version because it goes on a long time and I was always so pro Marvin Gaye. You know, ironically, my favorite version of this song is actually Gladys Knight and the Pips. I think they do it the best. But but John Fogarty's version is just up there. You know, it's just as good. Um, and it's a great cover. And another one that they just absolutely owned is Midnight Special. Yep. That is another absolute classic that's a cover that they completely make their own. Um, and even Good Golly Miss Molly, you would think you can't cover Little Richard. I mean, come on. But they do it. And because he, he's such a great singer, they are able to do it. Now, as far as my evaluation, it's pretty much along the lines of Jeff, uh, what Jeff was saying. Um you know, I'm not even going to short the playing of the other members. I don't think they're remarkable, but they played what the songs needed. And even though they may have had a helping hand from Fogarty, really, you can't short them on any of the albums except one. Um, and that's Mardi Gras. And they get that blame. You know, sail away. Just listen to it. You know, you'll see how terrible this is. And you can see why Stu Cook never did a solo album uh, again. Um, and then John Fogarty, one of the greatest American songwriters, 
singers and guitarists, yep. right? I mean, he his guitar playing, he plays everything you want to hear, right? Every, all, what the songs need, the solos are great. You know, he's technically solid, but it, uh, but virtuosically inspired, right? He he can he knows what to play in a song. He's a great player. Um, and then some of the songs are just instant standards. I mean, Proud Mary sounds like it could have been written 200 years ago. I mean, it's like an American, like, epic song, you know, that's, uh, it's just, I mean, cleaned a lot of plates in Memphis and this whole travelogue about the steamboat, the riverboats and all this. I mean, it it's like literature, you know, and the song shit. instantly took off because, you know, it's just, it's just great lyrics. Um Again, I say they may be the best American band ever. The songs will absolutely stand the test of time. I just don't think they they can't help but do so yeah. because they're just too good. I agree. Right? Yeah. I think a good song is always going to stand the test of time. If it's if it's a decent song, maybe not. If it's a great, great song, it will. And I think these will, right? Yep. At least the hits. Um, and of course, we got to call out Saul's Ants. I think the one thing message uh, with Saul's Ants should stand the test of time too, as a precautionary tale uh, for anyone getting into the music business or any other kind of business. Just steer clear of, you know, get a lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> don't don't rely on your flaky friend's dad yeah. to read the contract. Actually, hire a lawyer. Um, and then the other band members, you know, it's too bad, you know. And it's funny because he's actually now going. Well, maybe I would reunite with them again. You know, let bygones be bygones. And they're like, no, it's too late. <laughs> it's like, what? You guys are looking like you guys are nothing. And you this guy deigns to even want to play with you again. You should be honored, yeah. you know, I mean, they, they, especially after all the shit you did to them. They could tour you know? and, and fill stadiums, you know, as like the yeah. original Credence. And and I mean, look, I don't think they should just because I mean. John shouldn't give them the time of day, in my opinion. But financially, I could kind of get it that he would because, he, but he should sign a deal with them where he's getting the bulk of the money. No one will come out yeah. to see people will go to see John Fogarty tours now, you know, and, and people like to go yeah. see that. But if they he goes to Red Rocks and shit, whereas they play the county fair, yeah, and you know, barely county fair. Like who can <laughs> see Creedence Clearwater revisited? Fuck those guys. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, all right. I think we're obviously we're both huge credence forever credence and uh, we're going to play you out with uh, one of the classics that uh, credence used to close their shows with, uh, and we advise you to do the same, which is keep on chugling. All right. Oh, Lord, what's in the 